Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. <laughs> we didn't want to reverse roles. I asked you just before saying that, should I say hi, Raphael, first? That's never happened. <laughs> uh, next week. Yeah, next time. Episode one, uh, 200. We'll try that. <laughs> let's not, don't mess with a good thing. Yeah, don't, let's not rush into it. <laughs> so um, we have a, a user email because we said unresearched things that were not true. Oh, you, yeah, user or listener, whichever, um, <laughs> whichever is your flavor. Yeah. I like the idea that we're more of an app than we yeah. are a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're more like uh, Google than we are like, uh, I don't know, Joe Rogan or something. Our app would be called Movie Snob or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or Movie Rambling or uh, Movie Misinformation, according to um, yeah. a great listener, Eric, who actually sent I, us... Uh, I, I get his point, but I'm still a little. But yeah, so I said in the in the last episode that Kubrick tends to pick actors more than movie stars, and he's like, "Hey, wait a minute! He worked with Kirk Douglas. He worked with Peter Sellers, and then he mentioned that the actor from uh, Barry Lyndon was kind of the Tom Cruise of his day. He was really super big movie star." But then, well, yeah, also like because we were, I think, because we were described him as an Irish boxer <laughs> and he's actually born in LA, the son of a screenwriter. He's like, yeah, his name kid. is O'Leary he's, or something. Like, he might as well be Macaulay Culkin or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're like, he's it does a poor show Irish how, boxer. How fickle fame is because you can say what you want, but I think very few people could name him if they saw him on screen. Well, I mean, I think it depends on your age and it's out in or what yeah, you're exposed you to. Ever, have you ever walked on the Hollywood Hollywood Walk of Fame and they have the radio stars from the 30s? Uh, yeah, and I know them all. I know them all very well. <laughs> yeah. It's actually funny because I listen to 30s radio when I go to bed, but it's mostly to fall asleep. I just, mm. <laughs> Chris, Kristen puts it on every night kind of thing. Yeah, they have that funny way of talking. Yeah, I see here. Look at that. <laughs> Get these crooks in jail. It is it is funny that 50 years later, someone will listen to this podcast and think our voices are hilarious. Like, oh, they're acting. Yeah, what's that affectation they have? What's wrong with yeah. them? There's this podcast uh, talking style that I can't emulate, but it's almost like every sentence is in the form of a question. Or there's a weird intonation going on with some podcasts. You mean in like, like 99% Invisible and podcasts yeah, like that? Yeah, Where it's like... We just, we ventured into the unknown, not yeah. knowing what we were doing. Portlandia has a good sketch about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, do you know that right. one? Yeah, I do. Yeah, they're like these rednecks at the police station are struggling to keep the phones going, and all the police guys are like, "What?" <laughs> yeah. Is, yeah, are they brought to you by Brew Apron? Or maybe it's us. Yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, and there's a guy with a banjo following him around. Yeah. And, I grew up on a farm surrounded by the smell of huckleberry bushes. Huckleberry. <laughs> I can't go with this. Oh, yeah. And then, then uh, now the big podcast news this week was uh, Joe Rogan is the new Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. that I'm not like a Joe Rogan listener. So, you know, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Um, I didn't realize he was such a sensation. But I mean, yeah. I knew the, obviously I knew the name. People name drop him. But, you know, I don't watch it on, because I think he started on, was it on YouTube or something like that? that, that no, I, like, I think it started as a podcast, but then he But then it became just, like a YouTube? He just films thing. the episodes and simultaneously they go on podcast. And, on the, and then he held off, he never put his podcast on Spotify. That must have, that was a smart move, I guess. Because Spotify has now acquired the rights to his show? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, we can do a little podcast theory, but uh, basically... 
podcasting is an RSS feed with the audio attachments. So it's an open platform and anyone can build a client and anyone can subscribe. It's like email. Yeah. But uh, Spotify has a proprietary format where you don't download an MP3 of the entire episode, but you download it the way you watch a YouTube thing and they can dynamically insert ads. So when yeah, you... Yeah, it's called, it's called programmatic advertising. Yeah, but when you submit a podcast to Apple Podcasts, you just submit a URL and it, it just scrapes your RSS feed, but they don't host the MP3 file. But in the case of Spotify, if you sign up for it, you have to agree that, like, okay, you can copy my episode and uh, recompress it or whatever your magic is and do with it what you want. So it's it's different than the other podcast apps in that sense. And I think what the the, the worry is is that Spotify is going to become like uh, Netflix is for podcasts and the podcast world will become less open and free. Yeah, surprise, surprise. Yeah. And you could be listening to this podcast right now and I get cut off like right now and there's yeah. an ad for Casper mattresses and then I come back not knowing that I've been you know, interrupted by Casper. Yeah, it, it is always, uh, they will probably make it more convenient. Uh, you know how RSS never really hit the mainstream <clears throat> as a newsreader it's too complicated and i mean they, yeah some people loved it though i yeah. i still use it every day but uh, for most people it we talked about that a lot that open source feels too much like a chore mm-hmm. for and, most people yeah and, convenience is really what has shifted piracy as well or any yeah. open it's unfair to compare piracy to podcasting or open source but i mean even the open source movement like microsoft owns github and yeah, a lot of the way people share code. <clears throat> um, yeah, it's. I guess it's something to watch out for. I am always sad though when something that's grassroots becomes um, kind yeah, of locked it's not into cool. a single company. Yeah, um, and it's funny that Apple wasn't the first one to make this move because they kind of made uh, podcasting more accessible when uh, just through. I think most, even most of our listeners, still come through the Apple Podcast Player. Yeah. Yeah, we're not on YouTube because we're lazy and, and we're not in the same physical location. So it'd be hard to film. And... Don't lie. It's because, you know, I was joking before we went on air. Our hair is like out of control. <laughs> <laughs> it would just be, you know, you'd be disgusted. It's yeah. like our faces aren't made for TV and neither is our hair in this quarantine <laughs> situation. <laughs> yeah. But do you uh, do you have time to listen to podcasts? Yeah, I usually listen in the bath, though. Oh, yeah. Um I used to listen in the car, but uh, that doesn't exist anymore. So, uh, and apparently, podcast listening is down as a result uh, by a significant margin. Less people are listening. Yeah. Um, same thing goes for radio, but, uh, but not it, as much as you'd think. Uh, we because we, we really recently released like a mileage tracking application uh, in our product, just a beta of it. A wider release will come soon but we that means we can tell like who's driving and we were surprised to find that more people are driving than we thought so people are still driving around i don't know what they're doing yeah i guess guess they feel very protected in their cars well and and i guess you know i underestimated like the number of people that still have jobs that they or job Mm. sites that they they drive to and things like that and i guess gas is cheap now yeah totally yeah. So anyway, that's kind of a like actually a, a really lovely segue. That's a segue. Yeah. <laughs> I was searching for the segue, yeah. master of the segue, um, into this week's uh, featured movie, which I got wrong at the end of uh, <laughs> like I I mistitled it at the end of the last. How many episode. times had you seen it before? 
This movie? Yeah. I'd only seen it once in theaters, uh, yeah. but I was obsessed after I saw it. And I, I saw the movies. Uh, I was watching prequels. it and I was like, does Jeremy love this movie for the technology and the cinematic achievement or for the feminist angle? Okay, well, first of all, the movie is Mad Max Fury Road. I said Valhalla, which, of course, Valhalla is like heaven in that universe. But I don't know why I thought it was Valhalla. It was just like stuck in my head. Um, and it's Valhalla is mentioned throughout the movie, I guess. Maybe that's why. But uh, is that I hadn't from, seen the movie from in five Norse years. Norse mythology or just general Viking mythology? Valhalla? I don't yeah. know. Um, so, so that's one thing we can talk about in terms of this movie and the backstory and the mythology around the movie. Because the original series, Mad Max series, started in the 1980s. The first movie, I think, Mad Max 81, 1. Was, I think the first yeah, one. 80 or 81. I, I, didn't see, I didn't see that movie, obviously, in theaters because I was too young. But I did see uh, Mad Max um, Thunderdome, which came out after Mad Max 2 in 1985. I saw that at a drive-in theater. That's the one theater. with Tina Turner. Yeah, with Tina Turner. Yeah. I saw that at the drive-in near like a summer camp or something I was staying at. Oh, that's cool. And that's I have perfect such... to see a car movie in a drive-in. I know. And it like as a child, uh, I would have been six or seven years old. Uh, it left a, like a major uh, impression on me that... Um, I think this movie has changed the world like maybe more than any other movie instead of if you don't follow the rules, society will collapse and this is what the world will look like. Well, I think, I think yeah. this movie made such a strong impression of what will happen when things collapse. I don't think any movie before it or after defined the aesthetics of the apocalypse as much as this. And you know what's crazy is that um, the director, who should mention is George Miller, he worked as like a paramedic response, uh, you know, kind of person. Like he, he worked with you know, uh, helping people in emergencies and things like this. And um, so p part of the movie is like him grappling with emergency situations all the time. And then the backstory for the movie was um, when, when the genesis of it was in 1979 or in the 70s, there was like the, the oil, oil crisis. crisis. Yeah. yeah. And then in 79, there was another, you know, uh, oil crisis and conflict with Iran and Saudi Arabia. And so the premise of got this whole thing started was for George Miller was like, well, what if, what would happen if that just like spiraled out of control and like all of the it is, oil it fields funny. were burned? We, yeah. we, I was in the Netherlands and the COVID lockdown started and the prime minister did this speech and he says, well, we'll have to adjust and uh, we're going to do our best, but we'll never go back to our previous way of life. And in the, uh, it's very rare that the prime minister in the Netherlands has a, a TV speech that's on all the channels at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happened with the oil crisis. And then the prime minister at that time said, okay, well, this is a crisis of epic proportions. We've never been here. The energy is cut off and, and we're going to have to make adjustments and we'll, we'll be okay, but we'll never get back to the prosperity that we once had. So there's a general feeling of like the future is so unknown and then we just expect the worst. Mm -hmm. yeah, Obviously, I mean... we... we, we we gained a lot more material wealth after, so his his prediction was not true. But what's funny is like, or maybe not funny at all. It's, like, <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> what's hilarious about this is, so this movie came out about five years ago uh, this month. Um, I, th it, I think it was released in May 2015, May 15th, 2015, I think actually. And um, that, that, you know, today, five years later, it seems more relevant than it did then 
And yeah, it's a bit uncomfortable watching it today. I, I was watching it today, and it, Christina is really into Animal Crossing. I think a lot of people now are into this happy Nintendo Dream World escape. Mm-hmm. And then you're watching this, and limbs are getting torn off, and people are fighting over water, and it's like, oh, this might be <laughs> next year. I don't really want this. Well, I think when whenever you're in the midst of like a major cr- global crisis, like the oil crisis was, and like... Um, this pandemic crisis is, you know, no one can predict the future. You're always great about that, I think, where you're like, hey, there's all these people saying they think it's going to be this or that, but we can't really say what it's going to be like. And so that's also like the opportunity for kind of imagination to step in. And it can go two directions, <laughs> go towards, you know, yeah. utopia. And maybe it's going to become like a green world, you know, where envir- you know, we finally recognize the environment as our top priority. Or maybe it be- devolves into this yeah. like desert wasteland where we burn all the oil fields. The other thing that's interesting to me is that the news is becoming more and more intense, and action movies have become more intense. And and this is kind of uh, this movie raised the bar for action sequences and uh, amount of action on the screen. And there are basically no words. And George yeah. Miller wanted to well, make well. There's movie. a whole history of of action movies like that. Like Predator is is an example where there's hardly any talking. But I think this movie raised the bar on the amount of moving vehicles and explosions per second. And, yeah. And yeah. It, it's really, um, it's it's two parts, right? The first part is, um, is sort of this uh, chase, you know, out of the Citadel. Which is is, is where this the... one of those movies that the story is so famous you don't have to explain it? Or should we explain a little bit? Well, I mean, it's a chase and a race. That's the way I think it's... But it's also a... a um, the start we, of a new society and the breakdown of a former one. And like, do we have to explain who Mad Max is? Maybe, maybe just a little bit. Like, the, the idea in the first Mad Max is uh, society's breaking down after a series of crises. Yeah, and Mad and Max then, is, like, traumatized. But it starts... In the beginning, he's still... It's still a little bit normal world. He has a, a kid and a wife, and they're pretty happy together, but there's a lot of outlaws on the road. That, well, that's he's a poli- how, and he's a police officer. Yeah. And so they kill his kid and his wife, and that's when he's really mad. And so, yeah, and this haunts him. And, but then the next movie is really okay. We're, and it, that's what I'm talking about about this creation of these aesthetics. So the first movie, it's a bit like Crazy Bikers, but it's the just next movie, it's yeah. a full-on techno tribe, and <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's basically Burning Man if everybody's violent. The aesthetics do. It's funny because if you go back and look, obviously at the first Mad Max, it's like, oh yeah, this is like set in this, in in like it's set in Auckland, but it seems like contemporary, like it's you know present day nineteen eighty. There's still and, stores, and he, he yeah. still has a house, and he has a dog, and it's yeah. still yeah. There's something yeah. to lose still. Yeah, and by the time you get to twenty fifteen, it's like it's uh, the Namibian desert where they shot this, and <laughs> yeah. it's like completely barren, and uh, yeah, people are driving these these. Uh, these crazy cars that are matched together from, you know, all these spare parts and things like that. The aesthetics that are like are really, really interesting. And I think George Miller, um, I saw in an interview, he was like, you know, you see all these post-apocalyptic universes and they always propose that everything's in a state of decay. And I was like, that just doesn't add up. Like, even if he was like, if you go back to like cave societies, you know, just because it's the apocalypse doesn't mean that the capacity for humans to create beautiful things is diminished, which I thought was a really incredible statement, right? Mm-hmm. That our capacity to create beautiful things, that art that art exists despite um, context, right? Like, or maybe not despite, but like overcomes um, 
you know, travesty in some manner. And so like the, the, the willingness for human beings to express themselves or the, the will to do that is, um, is so great no matter what the, con- you know, the context yeah. or consequence. And it does seem like the, the way he creates the villains and the, the vehicles and the, he just went through the history of war in every culture for the last 20,000 years and picked the craziest stuff. Like masks, yeah. uh, makeup, uh, feathers, vehicles, uh, all kinds of outlandish weapons. And it, I think it feels like he put a team of... Uh, 40 teenagers in a room and be like, okay, just come up with the craziest war examples. Yeah, and what's unfortunate is I can't remember the artist's name who worked on everything, which is ironic to this podcast being about artists, but a single a single artist did a lot of the designs for the vehicles. Oh, okay. um, and was really, like, George Miller is, like, um, really collaborative and trusts his team quite a lot. I mean, he has this, unif- like, kind of focused vision, but a lot of the same people have worked on his movies. And so th- I think that's also why the aesthetic has evolved the way it has. And this is, I mean, yeah. we have to say what, that this yeah, is a one huge thing aesthetic to mention, achievement. Yeah. W- one thing to mention is that there's a whole history of reboots. So we have to mm-hmm. see it in that context too. And usually the reboots are done by a new director. And in this case, it was the original director. So that, that in that sense, this movie was quite different than totally uh, the Star Wars sequels or the Marvel sequels or... You know, it's even edited by his his partner and wife, uh, Margaret. Um, so, like, but it's really like a family kind of people that put this together um, over, you know, and the, frankly, the story of making it. So they tr- it took like 15 years to make because they wanted to make it in 2000, 2001, because um, he, he, he had kind of like put the series to rest in the late 80s. And he's like. He had, you know, some eureka moment and he was like, okay, I think I know what this movie needs to be. And, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to make it. And then he, he start they start production in 2000 and then, and they bring on, you know, Mel Gibson was going to reprise his role as Mad Max. And anyway, then 9-11 happens and like they couldn't get, um, this is such a, like a weird, like bureaucratic thing. They couldn't get insurance <laughs> for the shoot. And so they had to shut everything down. And and then, like, Mad Max, played by Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson, like, was... Uh, there. There's an incident where he was worried about, like, how many Islamic people were going to be in the region they were shooting in. So, like, the first seeds of, like, what became Mel Gibson's toxicity started to emerge at that time. Uh, and then they had this opportunity to... So they, they kind of put the movie to rest. And they're, and they're also... And they were also like, hmm, Mel Gibson's kind of going crazy. Anyway, so they kept... <laughs> they kept going on and then in 2010 they were going to shoot again they were like okay let's do this again and they're like let's do it back in australia and they had all the cars and everything like ready to go and built like everything was good to go and then um suddenly there was this rain that like made the desert into a like made it full of flowers and like it was blue (laughs) god damn it (laughs) and they were like what like it was like this rain hadn't happened in a hundred years. The desert had never looked this way. And they're like, okay, well maybe we just wait a year and everything will be dead again. But it didn't. It, it wasn't dead <laughs> well, that again. Sucks. <laughs> yeah. So they're like disappointed. And then suddenly, and then they're like, okay, we got to like perseverance. I guess they pushed. Uh, well, actually, what ended up happening is um, Miller went and shot like Happy Feet uh, prior to this, and so he, you know, Happy Feet was this like penguin movie, and it made a lot of money. And then the studio was like, okay, we can spend more with you and you can do the Mad Max movie you always wanted to do. 
And so um, he was like, okay, well, let's, we're going to, we're going to do this and we're going to do it in Africa. And so they shipped all the cars and all the, everything to the Namibian desert in Africa. And, um, and then, and started again for like a third time. Um, but by now also, I should have mentioned like Mel Gibson was out of the picture cause he was like full on, like too old and too crazy. Um, and obviously they cast like a new Mad Max and, and Charlize Theron is like really the lead in this, or I think probably, um, Charlize Theron who plays, plays Furiosa and then Tom Hardy who plays the new Max. Well, it's a bit um, like the, the Thunderdome one where, where Tina Turner is the star, but yeah, Mad Max is the sort of silent uh, hero. So I don't even think it matters who plays him. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's just so much great stuff to talk about. I don't even know where to start. But anyway, so the movie d- does eventually get made. I just want to mention it cost a lot to make. And so they actually, the studio eventually was like, this movie's over budget. And they shut it down before they finished shooting um, in like December of, I can't remember what year. But like, um, and so they hadn't shot the opening scenes and the closing scenes at the Citadel, which are kind of like the bookends of the whole movie. And like I don't know something transpired where the guy that cut the movie's funding six months later got fired and then a new guy came in and said like let's finish this movie (laughs) but like there was so much they had to overcome and then the movie um didn't make as much money when it came out as they thought it would um because the Chinese market uh didn't adopt it they banned it it was too violent but yeah, but George, I don't know the re- exact reason, but George Miller had made the movie almost without words as a as a reason for it. There was a reason for it that was like a marketing reason as well, uh, which was that like his belief for all his movies was like you should be able to watch it in Japan and not need to know the words. Uh, it should be like a global movie. Yeah. So reducing it's language. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you can just uh, smoke something and watch it. Yeah, I mean, it's the same advice people have given me that I've rejected my my, my career as an artist. <laughs> They're always like, if only you did your work without words, it would be so much more global appeal. Um, but but actually, anyway, so they lost money. So and and then of course they won tons of academy like uh, Oscars for the movie, not Best Picture, but they were nominated for that. And then it became it's now known as like one of the top ten films of the decade, right? That being the decade, the last decade, and. Um, but I, I, despite it all, and and apparently it was production hell. Like it's one of the hardest productions. Even after all of those struggles that they had to overcome, they shot over twelve months. It was both like hundred degrees and like zero degrees because the desert was super cold in the winter and really hot in the summer. And the casting crew, like you know, had dust in their eyes and they were fighting. And like there was a lot of tension on set. And like if you look at Char- Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy, have given interviews where they're like. I still like it was the best shoot of my life, but also the hardest. And I have this pit in my stomach about it still to this day because it like it changed my life. <laughs> it's like it's just such yeah, a. Yeah, it reminds epic... me of the Revenant. You know, here how hard it was to shoot that one. Yeah, and it's I don't know, and and then on top of everything, there's almost no special effects in the movie. Everything is done for real. Like all the cars are made for real. All the explosions, all the stunts. Like they had people on poles from Cirque du Soleil actually jumping on the cars and. Um, the whole like and here's another crazy thing there's just like so many crazy facts at this movie there's no script they only did storyboards so they actually it was like basically a comic book that they they did 3000 individual storyboard images um for the movie and they this never movie <laughs> really like reminded me of a, a there's an SNL sketch about crazy fast food and 
I think it's Andy Sandberg and two other guys, and they're sitting in a restaurant. And it's like, do you like tacos? What if we deep fried the taco and then wrap a pizza around it and then turn <laughs> it into a burger and then make an enchilada yeah. and then put sushi on it? And like that, that's what this movie is. And yeah. seeing it the first time in the theater, I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is such an achievement. <laughs> and then seeing it the second time at home, I'm like, oh, my God, do I have to really go through this? Really? Yeah. And it's like, oh, man. And the, the acting is pretty bad and it, it, weird mumbling and... The story. Well, that's Tom Hardy. Like, I think that's just the Tom. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. It, it, it's it's funny. I just kept thinking. Um, I watched Star Wars the other day, and I also thought they're trying to make it more open-minded and inclusive. Uh, I think one of the Star Wars episodes, they also critique uh, arms dealers and like, oh, these people are the really evil ones. Yeah. But still, everything is solved with violence and. The mm. other day I was watching Back to the Future and the only way to get confidence is by beating up the bad guy. Just, you can't That's get... interesting, yeah. And so well, be... the, the, I think I think we're so deeply grow, grown up that, that uh, conflict is solved either to, through screaming or fighting Yeah. that yeah. We, we don't even recognize... And of course this movie... Uh, well, the backstory is seated in conflict, right? And, and, yeah. and for this movie, obviously, right, it's the... Charlize is ex- escaping you know, the Morton who is like, you know, the king of this world and like has enslaved these wives to produce babies for him. And really it's a, it's a, it's a feminist story in so much as it's like, she's not just like, um, kind of your, you know, a typical, uh, hero. She's almost like an anti-hero. She's conflicted, uh, but she's really angry at this man. And, um, and then there's no, like, there's just, I, I don't know. I thought it was pretty cool that, um, she's also like only got one arm. And so there's a certain like, there's a certain thing you don't normally see in movies where there's even like talking about inclusivity or inclusion, like they're they're not even like using that as like a, it's not really a disability. It's something that she's like, you know, it, everyone in that world has a disability and it's just like normal, but they have to deal with it. And it's just, I don't know. It felt pretty cool. And, and then it's not like she's dependent on Mad Max. In fact, they're more like codependent on one another. And often she like, she is, you know, superior or they're like, they're, I don't know. There's just some weird, there's some really cool uh, dynamics there. Yeah. No, there's no, there's no love story, which is so refreshing. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. There's a lot to this movie and in terms of choreography and explosions, I don't think you can top this movie, but I, I think, um, seeing it, there's something, and this is interesting in the context of COVID, Mm -hmm. there's something about special effects movies that to me, they're, they're believable in the theater. And when I see them at home and I'm closer to the screen, I feel like I'm, on a computer and playing with After Effects or Cinema 4D, mm, even though even though these are not CG and whatever, I, of course there's a lot of compositing. But I've, do you know that feeling in After Effects when you're composing things and there's layers and then you press the RAM preview and you start to see <laughs> it move? I, yeah. I don't have that in the movie theater, and I have that more at home. Now in the theaters, as I recall, it was mostly shown in 3D, and I remember the 3D effects were kind of exaggerated in this movie, like when the steering wheel and that final. Mm. kind of chase sequence with the crash of the you know the tractor trailer i did think that the idea of a steering wheel being the key to a car was really genius well like also it's like yeah there are these like religious symbols i think for but there's these removable steering wheels so you can't start yeah. the car without having the steering wheel 
Yeah, I mean, each car was exquisitely designed and actually functioned. That's the other thing that kind of just blows your mind. And the fact that they shot this movie with all the cars moving, like everyone is like actually on the car. Like they shot the movie with the truck driving. You know, when you go to you watch a movie and they like there's a car scene and in and the background, project you can, the landscape behind, like, in and the you can tell, you can movies. see like the flicker of like, a, yeah, what is that yeah. like? Is that a landscape from the 1950s in the back <laughs> of this movie? And, yeah. uh, it's and like a the, little guy behind a, a a wall that moving a tree and yeah, and, that always. I don't know for some reason that always like breaks the illusion of of reality for me. The fact that they tried to do everything for real for me is meaningful because in in my own work. I do a lot of obviously effects stuff, but I always do it in real time. And I was listening to an interview with um, with George Miller. He talks about how you can tell if someone really believes in the world that they're in, yeah, in, like in the subtle nuances of their facial expressions, of like how but, they yeah. interact you, with things. If you go back to the first Mad Max, where it's really just like <clears throat> a cop versus a bunch of criminals, uh, there's not a lot of special effects. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really believable. You believe that the sun is hot at the at the moment of shooting. It doesn't right. feel like they're in a studio. Right. And then he's just building upon that work ethic, I guess. And uh, I think it's interesting that the movie started very humble, or the franchise. Well, absolutely, because like, well, it, it, it was it, privately maybe, funded, the first maybe, movie. Maybe to maybe. review the movie, it's interesting to uh, <clears throat> compare it to Star Wars, where Star Wars was never started in a place where you'd be like, yeah, that could be a street near me. Or, yeah, I've been to Australia. That's what it looks like. And I think Star Wars, uh, in that, at least to me, is less powerful in my imagination that I, I don't think if X, Y, and Z happens on Wall Street, that's what the world will look like. But I feel mm-hmm. like with Mad Max, you could really think like, yeah, if if, if there's a nuclear war that, or whatever, that, that's really what the world could do you know what like that's, no no you're it, right like and there's i think like that's little, what makes little, this movie so scary there's little touches too i think that make it believable that way like for example <clears throat> mad max is wearing like a mask he's like you know in this caged kind of mask and at, at the start of the movie and you can see that it's made from like a garden fork right like you can see that everything in the universe is made from scrap metal that and you can like, kind of identify the pieces and so the whole world i was just thinking about it from an art direction standpoint which is like when I was working on something this week around brand and <clears throat> you realize like how important it is to create a believable when creating a believable world yeah. that yeah. every element is considerate of the thesis of that world. Right. And um, it was so interesting because like Charlize, I, I saw an interview with her and she was talking about how originally she was supposed to wear like have long hair and kind of wear a more like billowy outfits and stuff. And she was like, she went to George and she was like, this is bullshit. You know, like her hair would like get caught up in the, you know, the cogs and like, this doesn't make any sense. We got to shave my head and I'm, and I'm, and I've got to wear just like clothes, like this is like just a t-shirt or whatever. Utilitarian. Yeah. Utilitarian. <clears throat> and he was like, you know what? You're right. Like he listened and he's like, we could, and, and she had really understood the backstory. She also the, uses the premise of the world. motor oil in a sort of tribal war paint. Where is it? Like... At some point, her face is clean, but then when she gets back into war mode, she puts uh, motor oil on her face. Yeah, on the top of her, you know, kind of... I I, I love the makeup in some ways. I didn't think it was cliche. And originally, I think she did have a more kind of cliched makeup, but the simplicity of the final look, I thought, was really iconic. And then there's the the harem of uh, the villain. The five wives. The five wives, but they look very frail. They're they're like exaggerated uh, sort of... 
but like speaking to be kept outside of the danger yeah and speaking to the that whole premise of like making it believable they had as a condition of them signing up and you know these there's some of them are famous some of them are completely unknown like zoe kravitz is one of them but for one of those women it was their first time ever in a movie but as a condition of working together they all five of them had to spend like i think it was more than a month prior to the movie in workshops that were run by the playwright of vagina of the vagina monologues writing letters and like like internalizing what it's like to be raped and carry a baby and mm. so they did all of this like all these sort of i wouldn't call them even feminist workshops but workshops about women and abuse and these women were some were mostly from good backgrounds and so it actually left them pretty shaken but then they also had to spend all this time together so there's so, a sadness that you feel in the shock. so when you yeah so when you see them on on camera what you're supposed to feel is like wow they've really gone through something together because they, they actually vulnerable. because they yeah. actually have yeah. well they're also vulnerable because it's freezing cold in those scenes uh, i think yeah. they're shot like they're almost naked which is you know you feel they feel vulnerable for that reason but they're also it's like winter in the desert uh, but you wouldn't know that obviously watching the movie but the movie um, looked very hdr well the the color grading on it yeah. is um definitely like um next level <laughs> like <laughs> Uh, I think that was interesting too when you like compare it to the 1980s well, movies. Like, yeah, we're talking about this sort of making it believable, but then this movie is believable, fantastical. Like, mm -hmm. you've never been to a place that has that color scheme. No, yeah, and I think it's supposed to look like the Australian kind of outback or something like that. Yeah, um, where the, which is the original kind of. I don't know scene. if you remember the end of the first Mad Max movie where. One of the the criminal biker dudes is chasing him, and at the end he uh, ties him. He he takes his uh, what do you call it when you uh, uh, the chain around an arm for a criminal? Uh, oh, handcuffs. Yeah, he puts a handcuff around his foot and on the door of a car, and yeah. then uh, he leaves a saw with him, and then there's a candle or something that's going to explode the car in 10 minutes. And he's like, okay, you have 10 minutes. You have to saw off your own leg. And then he leaves. Yeah. I do miss a little bit of that sort of... That uh, raw kind of... You well, know. I, I like it in a movie when the, the good guys also have some sort of anger or evil streak. And I thought I thought in this movie, the the villains were given much more color in their character and their uh, in their outfits and in their behavior they're more theatrical and ridiculous and yeah, the I mean, guys I, are just 100 percent good the villains are all super interesting too and yeah. um, going back to that thing i mentioned about them well, all there's like a, a judge and a capitalist and then the boss sort of or the well like there's the accountant guy um yeah you know with the nose uh yeah and there's the guy with... who has that sort of english wig of a judge or something like that mm -hmm. made out of bullets but they also all suffer from like different disabilities which i think is really kind of interesting like the but you never pity anyone like everyone seems powerful like i don't know that's where i thought like the heroes and the villains all are kind of on this equal footing and the mm -hmm. violence you're right is still a huge part of how the the plot resolves itself but it starts with the premise that there's been an uh, you know obviously a capitalism in the in in the form of like the you know the the king of this world um he has holding. access to the water supply. Yeah, he has access to to water, which is, I guess, the new oil in this world. and Or oil is still the new oil, too, right? Because it's pretty rare. Um, and they go bullet farming. 
yeah, the bullet farms <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, but at the same, t- you know, so there is that that capitalism is cast as sort of or like or any kind of um, power. Like it's a movie about power, right? So yeah, power is I cast don't think as a this looks like capitalism. It looks more like a, a mafia sort of logic where there's a yeah. boss and then you have to appease the boss. But I just think in the form in, in, through the lens of like what is power and how Organized does power crime, originate? Yeah. Power originates by having some, more of something than someone else through accumulation or um, artificial scarcity. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think one of the interesting things uh, is that the movie starts with this, obviously this get this chase out of, you know, out of the Citadel. And so, and she's supposed to be going to stock up, you know, to bring back resources, right? Furious is going to go get, is helping out. Right. And then she like goes, she's an employee. basically. Yeah. And then she goes, she's on the good side of the villa. But she's angry at him, right? And this, yeah. like, you and know, he, resentment. She, he, maybe just to explain the story a little bit. The warlord, the big boss, is called Immortan Joe, and he controls the city, and he has a farm to raise children. Basically, there's these mothers who are producing mother's milk, and then he has these frail princesses that have to get pregnant and deliver babies. And Furiosa escapes on a regular task, and she hides five of his wives in a truck and he doesn't know it he finds out later yeah, yeah. and so you know the so we're at the we're, the chase is like as they're getting out of town they're like oh what's going on what's going wrong here like they're out of they're in the wrong territory but well, she's supposed to go a certain direction and she heads east and they're like what's going on yeah and so and she's looking for this place called the green place um, which is also a place where she was kind of raised by this society of women. She was born there, yeah. And, and she's bringing also the wives there, and she's like, this is the, the utopia, this is where the world is still beautiful, where they plant crops and things like that. Anyway, they f- eventually find these these women, this women's society. There aren't very many of them left, and the green place is gone. They actually had passed it on their way to find them. Um, and it's been, the soil had been poisoned. And so then they make this very difficult decision, all of them together. And by the way, all along, Tom Hardy, we should have mentioned, is like Mad separate. Max. Yeah, yeah, is Mad Max. And it's a separate plot where, um, you know, he's just trying to escape. He's um, just trying he, to survive, yeah. He but says, the only reason hope he, is yeah, dangerous. And the only reason he ends up in contact with Furiosa is because one of the war boys who are these like, you know, kind of military white kind of, they're like white supremacists or something like that. Like, <laughs> It, it like doesn't it don't they remind you of like kind of the the boys you know the the sort of new, the new nazi movement in the united states like mm-hmm. the, well they their hair is shaven but then they also have a sort of uh tribal makeup thing going and there's a sort of norse mythology going and yeah, regardless. I don't think the racial thing is implied, but okay, but because it, but, when you say white, they're like they're literally covered in white paint. It's not like yeah, yeah. Regardless, um, you know, one of them is not feeling well and he needs to use Max as like a blood bag to have the energy to go pursue Furiosa. And so he straps Max to the front of his car and like hooks up blood, uh, you know, like a bloodline into himself to give him energy to go out in pursuit of, of Max. But he does a terrible job. Well, what he really wants is to <laughs> die in battle. That's the greatest honor. Yeah, so that he can reach Valhalla, which of course yeah. was the, the error I made about the name of the movie. And there's but, there's, um, there's many societies that have promised the heaven and afterlife if you die in battle. Right, right, yeah. 
And um, so anyway, but like, like I was saying, the chase, eventually they get to this place and these women, and then I think what, it's an interesting turn in the plot is they actually have to return to the beginning. Um, and so it's a race. They have to race. conquer the citadel because the, the defense yeah. of the citadel is basically out. So they, but, the, the citadel is left for them to take. The, why, the reason I thought it would be interesting for us to discuss is on this podcast, we've often talked about this sort of mythology of progress, like that there is yeah. this idea of one direction uh, for progress. But this movie literally turns that out in its head and it says like, no, you know what, sometimes you have to go back to go, you know, to go forward kind mm. of thing. Um, and it's so hard, you know, I think it, that scene's such a kind of cool scene because you realize, you know, everyone's putting everything at risk to, to, to sort of to go backward, you know, like, and obviously a bunch of them die on the way back too. Yeah, it is interesting that we're always taught to pursue something and then you're like, oh, you were already there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I think also just within the, the realm of apocalypse movies or post-apocalypse movies, the idea of of them in general is like, what does all this progress add up to? Yeah, I think, but, but I think one thing in the plot is that had they not left and had they just stayed, then the structure of the citadel would have been unconquerable for them that everything was set out for them to be enslaved so mm-hmm. strategically this was a a move to move the army out of the citadel and then go back before they were back and then uh, have the power so th- there was a function to the chase but they didn't they didn't know that until they reached no. the point and there's this line where mad max is like well we could head for 600 miles in that direction and we would just have more desert or we can go back to where we came from and confront our demons kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of an interesting, the plot is very simple, but even that simple statement within this context, I think is, is rather complex. I think that the plot is simple, but to me, and I'd love to talk to movie historians, but I don't know any other example of a post-apocalypse setting as powerful as this. Whether you like the movie or not, I think, think it has really cemented in everyone's brain the the idea of the worst case scenario that what, what that would look like yeah yeah i, whenever, I, I don't I, I do you know any other movies that sort of i guess terminator is kind of like if blade AI runner takes over blade runner i think is another but one blade runner is not as scary of a future like i wouldn't mind being in the half asian <laughs> half western city with good noodles like it doesn't look so terrible but the world is poisoned like there's yeah. that that book obviously from the middle of the last century called silent spring that kind yeah but of... it, it, honestly would you rather live in the citadel or the the, the blade runners town uh yeah blade runner i think you're right about yeah. the, noodle, the noodles uh option <laughs> sounds great uh and flying cars yeah you're right this is pretty much as as low as it gets where yeah you know you and the way the water is even dispensed, it's so frustrating. I'm like, why don't they put the buckets out first? It, me, it reminded like... me of the stimulus checks. <laughs> <laughs> it's like someone pulling a lever. Here comes the money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, if, in context of our present day, like being amid, in in this in the middle of this pandemic, you know, I don't think you could have imagined it being as bad as it is as, as we feel right now. But like. But we can all imagine it being worse somehow, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and like you said, um, maybe it's because of movies like this, but I can remember my last day in our office here in Toronto, I was like leaving and there was a designer leaving at the same time. And I was, I was just like, I had like pulled the emergency break, like we're not coming back to the office. Like I had made this like kind of statement. Yeah, you said goodbye. And, and then um, 
as I was talking to her, I was like, you know, this is just the beginning. Of course, what comes next is that the supply chain is disrupted. And (laughs) when that happens, you know, there's not going to be food in the stores. And when there's no food in the stores, you know, people are going to start rioting. And when the riots happen, then there's going to be martial law. And then under martial law, that'll allow all these people with corporate power to take over like government (laughs) positions. And then, you know, we'll probably end up all in slave camps. The funny (laughs) thing is that the Mad Max world seems scary, but then a lot of people pay a lot of money to go to Burning Man. Yeah. To, and and that it's like, oh, if we could live like Mad Max for 10 days and it'll be really fun. Well, that's almost, you know, another, you know, kind of another premise in the movie, which is despite uh, everything, there is a certain beauty in the desolation. Um, yeah, there's least... a moment where they look at the stars and did, uh, like, oh, those were sh- satellites. They used to uh, relay messages and they would uh, send out shows, these things called shows. Well, also, yeah, exactly. And everyone in the world had their own TV show. I love that line because it's like, <laughs> there's like, they're right, that's YouTube. Um, yeah, and just, but then the hope that they promote in that, like the next scene is like, okay, our hope is to go back to where the pain is and to turn that into a utopia. I, lo- I kind of love that idea. And we're going to plant gardens and everything we need is there. Yeah, um, but, but so for me, what's interesting about the scary future is that at the same time, before the pandemic and before a lot of people seemed unhappy with things as they were Mm -hmm. so there's there's a catastrophe whatever that catastrophe is and then there's the the future which is has not been decided yeah but the fact that it's unknown is is nerve-wracking but there's also the discontent of the of the present where people go to uh, like let's say on a camping vacation without their phone just to be away from regular life for a little while because it's just notifications all day and shopping and it's 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 draining and it's soul crushing and so it does seem that the people in the the there's maybe this is something interesting war is bad okay we can agree war is bad but there's something very thrilling about intense purpose and speed so that i think that's what's the thrilling thing about an action movie that there's a good guy and a bad guy and there's a time limit and all the time everybody's at the edge of death and if it wasn't that intense it would be boring and so there's mm-hmm. a there's a boredom to regular life that a lot of people find difficult to deal with and then they escape either into nintendo fantasy or this kind of fantasy or conspiracy theories or the prepping lifestyle which seems a bit created by this movie and so there is a desire yeah. for this kind of life too but we've maybe... talked about that on the on the podcast too before i think there's also a desire to escape the constraints of one's own identity and and oftentimes like whether you dress in you know whether it's a persona or whether it's yeah, like yeah. um some sort of like you know video game costume or whatever you know your fantasy you know maybe it's furries or something yeah um what you're the escape from the imposition of this is your life and deal with it is is one that i think is a human desire yeah. right? and that maybe maybe total safety is difficult to deal with well i think certainly like this well, is you, the you reason were saying your grandma said you should hope for a boring life that's right yeah well because she survived famine and war yeah. you know so yeah <clears throat> and i think if you grew up you know Kristen will hate me for talking about this because it's not to diminish the the situation we're in right now but if you were like born in 1900 you survived like the stock market crash uh, two world wars polio um like you know a ton of hardship for my grandmother anyway that was like you know 
surviving on a bag of onions was like a story my grandfather told um, that that's what got him through the famine in the Ukraine. So I think like I, it's really hard for you to for us to identify with the sacrifices that were imposed on like I don't know if my grandmother like for her like picking up a book and fantasizing about another reality was like so far from the opportunity like what she wanted was just like some common I remember visiting um Russia like in at the turn of the this century in mid-2000s and it was in Moscow and my my interpreter you know I I got the chance to get to know her pretty well and talking to her about the 90s and how that was right because if you think about it the end of communism was a new hope but it was also like a total collapse of everything that anyone in that country knew and she talked to me about the bread lines and like you know lining up for bread for <clears throat> for hours and not and, lining up for iPhones but like no and actually yesterday I was lining up for uh, like a at an electronic store for for an hour, over an hour and I was like this is ridiculous what is it Soviet Russia <laughs> but anyway she said like by the you know I was like well what do you think of this Putin guy and she was like well you know what we really want just like stability you know the 90s every day was like the cost you know cost of things went up by a thousand percent and you know there was all kinds of just crazy stuff every day. We just wanted no news for a little while. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, he represented that. And so, yes, he's not perfect, but stability is actually what we're looking for. So I think if you've been but, through... But you do know that feeling of uh, people complaining about modern life and like, oh, my, my job is too much and there's too many notifications and there's too much internet and there's too much news and everybody. That's sort of... Well, not, I think the, dan- uh, the danger... the mundane and, and the, the danger... Yeah, the danger in my what I'm talking about though is like that I would I would make anyone feel like whatever f- discomfort they have is not like real. Of course it is. Like that's a I don't want to gaslight anyone, right? Like No, no, but I'm talking your about misery the, is not the discom- as bad as discomforts else's. before uh, crisis like let's say 2 years ago where Yeah. There's a lot of people I think it was very popular to have sort of escapes from modern life. Yeah, and I mean escape rooms were literally like the most popular thing prior to this pandemic. No one's doing an escape room. Yeah, (laughs) that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, Yeah, the idea of being like, you know, put together in a tiny room with a bunch of people does not sound appealing. Like, figure your way out. (laughs) Don't die. (laughs) Don't cough. Yeah, but the last escape room I did was like set in like Nazi Germany or something. And I was escaping from the Nazi like they're just they're they're pretty absurd when you think about yeah. it but I you know yeah you want that fantasy of course video games use that um to their advantage as well like but I think occupying another world or another place is part of what art allows us to do another perspective the the um, other thing I wanted to talk about is the trajectory of movie technology mm-hmm. because you, you can argue that if if you want to talk about um making thrilling movies that they keep raising the bar and so it yeah if you, where does if it you're purely into action then if you see a movie that's 10 years old it's already well I, I get your point which is this is like a great this is like a mcdonald's cheeseburger that's like you said a taco as well yeah <laughs> yeah like, and some fried chicken around it and uh, like all the things explosion but i i was even seeing a thing you know where george was, miller was talking is i read i watched too many interviews because the version i said i i watched had all the extras but he was talking about how you know explosions are cliche in action movies like he was talking about that candidly and he's like we wanted our explosions to be 
bet you know like opera <laughs> we wanted them to be like ballet and there was a lot they, of dust explosions yeah well so they like they did they tried to like make the explosions and the stunt work and all of that less cliche by making them real because i think the point you're making which is interesting is like explosions and those types of special effects are now commodity like yeah. you need them like oh yeah throw five explosions in well it's like you get cinema 4d and they're included in the stock library yeah exactly exactly yeah. yeah you know let's have some colored smoke yeah some which they have in the movie <laughs> let's put some explosions in here um and so at a certain point yeah when it, is it just cliche is there anything of any meaning there or is it sometimes it can be used almost like collage like okay within these tropes of what we consider society and culture you know what can we say that's original or or new or different um but I, I get what you're saying. I just I just thought that the movie played within the sandbox of and plus it established the goddamn sandbox of post apocalypse. Yeah. yeah. Um in a in a really smart way where it didn't have to. And in fact the studio executives were pushing for this movie to be a lot shorter <clears throat> than it is. Uh and they fought back against that. So it's longer than it was supposed to be. Um mm-hmm. It doesn't feel long because it's no. literally mo- like it just doesn't stop. It, it it is interesting when you think of uh, movies that have a lot of movement and action. And I always think with Michael Bay, there's too much movement where you're not sure what's going on and who is hitting who, and uh, yeah, it it becomes almost like an abstract work. Yeah, just colors moving around. And so it's a fine line. You have these tools now that they didn't have in the 1920s or when they were making the first movies. So you have everything at your disposal, but then if you do too much and there's no moments of rest between the action scenes and there's at some point you don't absorb it anymore. That's true. I mean, it is interesting, though, because most you say that there's a lot happening, but the movie is in like the desert for like two hours. And then it's also in the desert inside the cabin of the truck they're driving for most of the movie. And the truck is actually like both a set piece and kind of another character. So but you're, like, you're basically saying this is a very quiet contemplative minimalist <laughs> I'm saying piece. I'm saying it, it is actually like a little play that takes place on a truck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. my review uh, there, there is a weird thing in the editing where they sort of play with the playback speed of, of uh, the, the frame they do the frame rate lowering and then they increase the playback speed yeah it's almost yeah. like they shot it at 120 frames so later they have the, the capacity to make time more liquid and I think I do believe they shot it. They did shoot a bunch of it um, at higher speed. Yeah, just uh, to have the material to then play it slower or faster mm-hmm, at, on a scarlet camera. Yeah, yeah, but it's almost like someone jumps and during the jump it speeds up a little bit and then slows down when he lands and mm-hmm. things like that. The stunt work is pretty incredible, though. Like, yeah, like the motorcycles jumping over the trucks actually did jump over the trucks. Mm. The stunt, the stunt guy that worked. It's so the, weird when you see a motorcycle riding over soft sand you're like how is that possible <laughs> well even like the the guy that coordinated all the stunts this was his last movie it was like his swan song he was you know he's like i wanted to whenever i think of up. stunt coordinators i think of danny mcbride in tropic thunder <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would be a good movie to review yeah i mean there's so much more to talk about in regards to the politics of the movie i know that's not what you you know well, your you, favorite you, thing to talk you, about but you can i'll give you the stage okay well i just think um how am i going to set this up but uh at, at the end of the day it, i you mentioned i would like it because it's a feminist movie but i don't think it's just a feminist movie i think that would be like 
cheesy if it was like just about you know i think when but they this do... is a new thing of the last 10 years that, that... well i think it was one of the first action movies to say hey we're not gonna like we're not gonna present women um and we're not gonna well, present the male hero the way they typically are but there like, was it's not tina turner hard. tina turner in thunderdome she was a strong female character no, I know, but but that's actually the point I wanted to make, which is it's not just about it being a strong female character. Actually, the female characters have a lot of vulnerability, and that's what makes them strong. And then the same thing is true of the male character. The other thing I think is interesting is that Mad Max himself, you know, is suffering from a mental health problem. And he is, you know, both that is both an, a flaw and an empowering aspect to the character. So he, there's an anti-heroism that I think is equal in all of the characters um but especially in Charlize and and Tom Hardy and Max and Furiosa and that they actually rely on each other throughout the movie like it, so it did, the, the, it did but the seem, point it did seem justified of, that he was crazy because that world is pretty messed up so the fact that but, he has weird dreams doesn't sure. seem like he has mental health and she, but she also has this like sort of disability and that she's missing an arm but the point I wanted to make is that it's very rare, like, I, I would argue that it's not just, it's not a movie about just female empowerment, it's a movie about allyship. And so the male and female characters are helping one another out. Um, and and also people I with disabilities. I don't agree completely. It, it seems like there's two sides that are fighting each other. Yeah. And one side has zero women, and the other side is 85 to 90%. Women. I'm not saying it's, like, perfect. In the, it's like a perfect allyship union. In fact, it's not. It's like one that evolves throughout the movie because actually Furiosa and Mad Max are in conflict, right? And also yeah. they don't even want to be around one another. Well, they don't even care Mad about Mad Max is kind of, his only goal is to survive. And he doesn't, he says he doesn't care about helping people, but he keeps having flashbacks of people he should have helped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and likewise, she's trying to help these, the, the brides, the women uh, of, you know, the, that are you know, one of them's pregnant, um, and but some of them not, actually want to go back to the evil master because they were well, living they're in a, a comfortable life. Yeah, but that's the thing. That's a nuance I want to speak about: is that they're in conflict, you know, which is a much more realistic uh, premise. And I, I, again, I, I would state that they're in—they're not heroic so much as like in personal conflict about what is it to be a hero in this place in this time under these circumstances. And then eventually through solidarity and I think in through becoming, you know, allies to one another and multi-generational on top of all of that with these like, I, older women that come in at the end, like old women, like as action heroes, is pretty awesome. I, I do think that um, when this movie is seen by people, I think the subconscious plays a much larger role than the, the actual plot. And I think mm -hmm. what people get out of this movie is... I hope the banks don't crash. I'm okay if the government bills them out because I don't want to live in a Mad Max world. I think my conclusion it's, would be that this type of movie creates a sense of conformity. Like, let's just keep society going because we don't want to live in this scary world. I, I don't think the layer where they go back to the Citadel and make it better, I think that's more words. But what you see on the screen is basically hell. And I think that's what mm. makes the psychological impact. So your your whole point throughout this podcast has been like, regardless, the aesthetic is the dominant narrative. Well, there's hardly any talking. So that the the and they never show the the collaborative ending. The the ending they kind of take over the citadel, but you don't really see that yet. She's not like holding up a crown or something. Mm -hmm. uh, even Star Wars, like you never get to see the play, the the 
the part where things work out for the rebels. It's always like you just see the sliver of the victory, but you don't really see them like creating a peaceful society because that's not interesting cinematically. The battle is interesting, but the the, the yeah. achievement of collaboration, which is really like what humans. I always think of like the peak of human organizations, probably Germany, where you just go around, everything's clean and nice, and everybody has a reasonable house and good health care. But it's not very thrilling to film, you know. Like, so wow. you're saying, like, yeah, like, where's the SimCity version of this film? Like, where we, <laughs> you know, we we build the we build the perfect society. Yeah, like you would say, okay, if if this is a story of struggle and then victory, why why do we only get two minutes of of uh, peace and mm-hmm. 180 minutes of crazy combat? So is that a segue into like what we might watch next? Is there are there yeah. movies out there about building something better together? Well, it, 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 I really think if you watch non-western movies you're gonna be surprised the 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 chance that you find a movie without conflict and like here's a hypothesis though do you think that you know because america has you know built into its constitution but even into the identity of most americans the idea of every person for themselves like individual freedom don't Mm -hmm. tread on me that you know, and the pursuit birth, of happiness, not happiness itself. Yeah, but from birth, every American is in a position of um, conflict with their fellow uh, neighbor, mm-hmm. and therefore, like these narratives. Yeah, the lone cowboy. Like him. even Mad Max at the end, uh, he could stay there, and he would probably have a nice wife and have a nice life. But he's like, no, I'm going to go my own way. Mm-hmm. Like the cowboy walking into the sunset. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, your point would be maybe, though, that in Europe, like, or Japan or other parts of Asia, there, there's more collective spirit, that the stories should also, therefore, be different. They should be more Yeah, it's, it's like that uh, that reality show that they have in Japan about just daily life without conflict. And Terrace so, House. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, Terrace House uh, set in the Mad Max universe. Or the Ozu like, films. You know, but like, let's take the Terrace House example. So like it, Mad Max would become like, okay, well, we better build like a little hut here. Well, what do we got? Some spare parts. Like, um, you know, maybe, you know, why don't you go find water? But the, I, ha- I once had like a, a writer that I worked with who said you cannot write without conflict. Like the audience is not interested. Yeah, but yeah. but we've obviously talked about this on the podcast before. And there are the, but what are the, what's, what's, so you have a suggestion for next week's film that kind of takes us to some place it's free of conflict. Um, it's more generative. Well, both, both, I thought of two movies, and then uh, maybe we'll leave it up uh, to how we feel, which movie we review. But there's one called Il Posto. Mm-hmm. It's an Italian movie from, I think, 61. It's about a young kid who can't go to college, so he has to start a job. And it's the, the process of applying for the job and meeting people there. And he's kind of shy in the organization. He's fighting his way, but it's it's basically a slice of life of an average person. Great. And the other movie is called Where's the Friend's Home? And it's about a, a young class of children, maybe they're seven years old, eight years old, and the teacher's a bit strict, and someone forgets their notebook. It, it, it accidentally packs it into his... He packs his friend's notebook into his bag, so he has to go find the kid, but he doesn't know exactly where he lives, so the whole movie is him trying to find where he lives. And he's like, do you know where he lives? Do you know where he lives? <laughs> not much happens. But it, there's also, but I think I wanted to review Il Posto because it's a movie with not much resolution. So, 
And El Posto is from 1961. It is available on Criterion if you're in Canada or the United States. But for our European friends, you might have more difficulty Go finding it. Go to the it. torrents. No, but there are, there are movie rental websites in Europe uh, for art house stuff. So there, maybe. There's one called Mubi. Have you heard of yeah. that one before? Well, I, I think I thought Mubi was the model where they always have 30 movies and then it changes. Uh-oh. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So there, mu- but there must be something in Europe. We yeah. should be, we should get some, we should get wise to that. If if our listeners have recommendations, but, but they can the way them. I thought about it is like, Mad Max is like the most insane burger known to man. It's like 15 patties with <laughs> truffle and slices of bacon, and it's like it's once in a lifetime. You can, if you do it more, you'll have a heart attack. But but it's ethical meat. Yeah, and then <laughs> these movies like Il Posto, uh, like someone made really good vegetable broth because they had really good vegetables in their backyard and but there's not much to it a lot of love yeah but i I, my argument is that there is a lot of love in this movie but i i don't disagree that it like it ramps up your 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 retina to well that's (laughs) seeing this movie made me think of uh where's entertainment headed because obviously entertainment is not headed to the quiet and the contemplative, but I don't know it, if that's true. Like, there's that slow TV movement. You know, yeah, I don't think the numbers are high. Yeah, but but <laughs> but imagine this when VR is like ten steps further, and you can be one of those Cirque du Soleil people uh, jumping from car to car, and it feels <laughs> real. And that, that's the world. Where, and then, how do you deal with daily life when you're used to that? Yeah, I guess it's just a, it's like heroin. How do you get off of it? Yeah, 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 yeah. You can't look away. Yeah. But I, I, I don't want to say one mo- uh, mode of movie making is better than the other. But uh, my, my only conclusion is that this movie seems like designed to make people fearful of collapse. But uh, yeah, but and my argument is that I think you know it. It's also designed to create hope. There is a se- a prequel coming out actually, um, or it's at least it's in production. Uh, so the universe is not yet um, complete mm. and we'll see what comes next. Yeah. And yeah, that's okay. it for this week, I think. All right, yeah. uh, everybody, uh, we'll probably review Il Posto and then uh, so yeah. if you can get your hands on it, uh, try to make it through. It's it's, it's uh, not as thrilling, but it's interesting. And keep your reviews of our reviews coming. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, be strict. Uh, <laughs> You know, if we didn't cover something that's interesting uh, for us to hear, but also for us to share with our listeners, um, I just think it's so hard. We try and do this as an improvised podcast so that we're, we bo- both, Raphael and I, might arrive at different conclusions than we originally thought we might. So we kind of burst each other's bubbles. Oh, we forgot to uh, talk about the music again. Well, exactly. So the other thing, we should talk about the music for just a second, because yeah. goddamn, like, I love how there was like the 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 car with the drums and the guitar player and the yeah. guitar is a flamethrower <laughs> and he, that that soundtrack like is the pacing for the whole movie and it's it, a it's a dutch guy who made the soundtrack oh really because it, yeah. it follows that pop music ideal do you of remember like, junkie xl the, the recording artist oh yeah he made the elvis remix for a nike commercial tom that, tom tom holkenberg board yeah or something like that yeah and he moved to hollywood he he scored the dark knight i think and uh, that was his breakthrough and then i've seen a making of of this movie where he works on the soundtrack and it's a lot of old synths and a lot of he just had a cello or it, there's there's a lot of low uh, frequency uh, string instruments that, like 
brum, brum, just a few notes that sort of pace the movie. But also like it's in a constant ascension. So it's like yeah. always going up. Yeah, is that what yeah. it's called? I, because yeah. then the editing also follows that. And you just feel like you're rising the whole time. Do it's you know, crazy. it's, it's, uh, there's famous drawings of uh, Escher, you know, the graphic artist that mm-hmm. made of sort of surrealist mathematical compositions. And there's one where there's a staircase that always seems to go up. Yes. Do you yes. know the drawing? And yeah, I think yeah. Christopher Nolan rep, uh, used that a lot in uh, uh, Inception, that idea of a weird perspective that doesn't make sense. And you can do the same thing in audio where you have, one note going upwards and one note going downwards and the moment where they hit each other is the looping point and somehow the upwards one or the downwards one you notice more and then so i've used the shepherd tone in my work i don't even know exactly how it works but it's a pretty simple (laughs) trick it's it's uh i love it the same way you have optical illusions you have uh, audio illusions and uh, it's the most hopeful tone that you know actually it's too progressive maybe is the counter argument it is kind of maddening and i think that's part of what this movie wants you to feel that you're just like i can't take this anymore and then more and more and more the tagline of the movie we should have mentioned is the future belongs to the mad so (laughs) yeah yeah. All right. Well, this movie uh, has to exist. It seems clear. Like someone had to make it. Yeah. yeah. Um, thanks for talking about it with me. I enjoyed uh, yeah. rewatching it and um, and speaking today. And thank you for listening. Um, and have a you know a, what is it? Take more risks. That's what we say. Don't stay safe. Stay. Oh, we say something risk. different every whatever you want. Yeah. Oh, okay. Enjoy life. Oh, and there's the sound of a siren. Just to <laughs> to close it up. Okay. More is coming. Okay. Take Back! Father! Uh. 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 Uh.
¡Fuera! 